Hi again. <clears throat> and so it's a pleasure for me to uh, come and share the Word of God with you. And this morning I would like to speak to you about uh, evangel evangelizing with confidence. Um, you may have heard before that I've been a missionary for many years before teaching at the RTC. And sometimes uh, people would come to me and say, oh, you were a missionary, but you are reformed. I said, what do you mean? Well, don't you reformed people believe that, that God uh, elects those who are to be saved, so why do you need missionaries? I said, well, you got that wrong. <laughs> uh, there's nothing more helpful than being reformed when you are a missionary because it gives you the real confidence to do the work to which God has called you. And I want to explain that uh, to you this morning, uh, because during my life in missions, I've always found the opposite to be true, that to know that God is the one who chooses his people, that God is in charge of the work that gives you confidence to go out. And it's not just been my experience, that's been the experience of many famous missionaries. Think of uh, Elliot and Brainard, uh, missionaries to the North American Indians. Think of Frelinghausen, <coughs> the pastor of the Reformed Church of uh, um, New Jersey somewhere, who started the Great Awakening in the United States, and he was joined by people like uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards, and of course Whitfield came over from uh, Britain to help in that too. Think of William Carey, the missionary to India, or uh, Moffat and Livingstone, missionaries to Africa. Also Mary Slesser, who started that large Presbyterian church in the south of Nigeria. Or uh, Judson, who worked in uh, Myanmar, or what used to be uh, Burma. Or Swamer, the great missionary to Arabia. And we can also place Paul in this category, because Paul very much believed that God was the one who chose his people. And I want to look uh, at the life and ministry of Paul this morning to show how it can help us in our ministry, and especially Paul's experience in Corinth, uh, what brought him to do mission work in Corinth. Well, in Acts 9, verse 15, we read that just after uh, Paul had seen that um, <coughs> the light and uh, heard that voice that brought him to conversion, God went, uh, sent a message to a man named uh, Ananias and said, Ananias, I'd like you to go and help Paul. And, and Ananias said, Lord, <laughs> I think you got this wrong because Paul is the guy who's causing all the trouble to Christians. Uh, surely not him. Send me to somebody deserving. Uh, God answered Ananias, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. He's my chosen instrument. Now, notice an instrument is something that is used, isn't it? And Paul was used by God. And it's so important we have the proper uh, understanding of mission. That mission isn't our work. Mission is God's work, and he uses us to do that work. And you can see that very clearly in the life of Paul. Immediately after he became a Christian, he realized he had to share the gospel with other people, and he goes to the synagogue to preach. But of course, uh, there was a bit of opposition, and he has to leave the city. Um, <clears throat> he is uh, 
um, went uh, to Arabia, but then uh, he's met by Barney. Oh, his full name is Barnabas, but Barnabas was a nickname, so we can call him Barney. It meant son of encouragement. And this son of encouragement comes to Paul and says, Paul, let me take you to the church back in Antioch. And he took him there, introduced him, and they became members. And then one day, the Spirit speaks to the church, set aside Paul and Barnabas to bring out the message to Asia. And we know how they went out and started all those churches in Asia Minor and then came home again where they reported to the church and participated at the synod in Jerusalem. Following that, <coughs> Paul said, well, let's go again. And uh, Barnabas said, great, I'll call John Mark to get ready. Paul said, hold on a moment, not John Mark. He's the man who left us in the lurch last time. We'll go, but we won't take him. And Barnabas said, Paul, he needs a second chance. We've got to encourage him. Well, anyway, they didn't see eye to eye. There was a bit of friction there, and Barnabas takes off with John Mark. Paul takes off with Silas, and we now have two mission teams working in Europe. Uh, but again, notice how uh, God is leading him. Uh, Paul comes there. And um, he starts working in Ho um, Asia Minor. But then we read that the Spirit would not let him go further into that area. And Paul is wondering, what must I do? And then he has this vision at night of this man from Macedonia saying, come to us, come to us, bring the gospel to us. And so Paul goes to Europe, Macedonia. And uh, then he goes to the town of Philippi, and you know that after uh, preaching to the people, there was a bit of uh, uh, problems, and Paul gets thrown in jail with Silas, and uh, then there was an earthquake. And uh, Paul and Silas feel all their fetters dropping off, uh, the doors open, and they could have walked right out. Instead, they go and see the, uh, the jailer, who's about to commit suicide because he knows he's in trouble if prisoners escape. And Paul says, don't do that. Um, <laughs> instead, listen to what I have to say. And the jailer and his family are brought to the Lord. Well, Paul then has to leave the area and goes on to Thessalonica. And again, there's unrest there. And uh, he then uh, is encouraged to leave the city and he goes to Berea where the Jews did accept him and listen to his word. There were much more godly uh, people there. And they then lead him to Athens. Um, <clears throat> now we know how Paul preached there at the Areopagus, preached to the philosophers, and many people came to Christ. And the next thing we read is that Paul went to Corinth. Now the interesting thing is, nothing is said about why he went to Corinth. Up to now, we read, he was sent there, he was encouraged to go there, he had a vision and so on, but why did he go to Corinth? Doesn't say. I suggest that the reason he went to Corinth is because Corinth was sin city in the first century. Now, today, if you say what a sin city, you can point to almost any city, because sadly, uh, sinfulness has really made inroads into Western society. But 
when I was young, and some of you older people will remember that, if you thought of Sin City, maybe you thought of Los Angeles or San Francisco. Well, that was the kind of place Corinth was. It's where things unusual were happening, where all the uh, sexual liberation and everything else took place. And in fact, if somebody was uh, immoral, they said, you live like a Corinthian. That was just... Uh, had a few Corinth. And I suggest that is the reason why Paul went there, because he thought if anybody needs me, it is those people in Corinth because of their sinfulness. Well, why do I think so? I think Paul thought that way because he had a real passion for those who were lost. Read Romans 9 and 10 and 11, where he uh, shows his concern for his kinsmen, the Jews who are lost. And he said, I'm prepared to go to hell if they can be saved. I don't know if I could say that, but he does say it there because he cared for those who were lost. And in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Or again, in 2 Corinthians 5, he said, we are ambassadors for Christ. God's uh, love constrains us. I must tell that message. We all must tell that message. I want to ask you, does God's love constrain you? Are you concerned that those people we see walking by may be lost because they don't know the Lord? Or have we perhaps bought into the vision that, well, there is no hell, and everybody's going to go to heaven, that it doesn't matter what your religion is because all roads lead to salvation. That's not what the Bible teaches us. Now, Paul was very concerned about the lost, and I think his strategy, too, can be an example to us. How did Paul work to bring the gospel? How did he go about it? Well, he would go to the cities in the Roman Empire because he knew every city had a synagogue which brought Jews together, and this for him was a natural contact to begin to bring the gospel because the Jews already knew so much about um, what God was doing. And so every time uh, it was a Sabbath, you would find Paul in one of the synagogues preaching. The Jews were his point of contact, we could say. And I want to ask you, have you identified a point of contact for your outreach? Do you have some people or perhaps a particular person or family that you are praying about that you have identified as where God wants you uh, to preach, to share? I think it's so important that we have a target, that we know what we, uh, what we want to do here. Now, uh, I don't know what your best point of contact is. Maybe for your ladies, it may be somebody you meet over a cup of coffee or tea or at work or at school with the children. For you men, maybe it's at sports or at work. Uh, it could be anywhere. Uh, the thing is, all of us have contacts where we feel uh, comfortable, where we can talk, where we can share the gospel. And uh, 
Paul found that among the Jews. And that's why he went everywhere, every time to the synagogues. Also, when he came to Corinth, he goes to the synagogue. And Crispus there, um, there was sympathetic, the leader, and uh, there was a lot of response, although other Jews turned against him, and he has to go and live next door. Also, we find that Paul himself now stays with Priscilla and Aquila, who were uh, a couple who shared a trade with him. They were tent makers, just like him. So he could stay with them and earn his keep by making tents. That's why we got that phrase, tent maker ministry today. doesn't mean you make tents. It means that you own, earn your own keep, just like Paul did here with Aquila and Priscilla. And it's so important we recognize that you can be a very successful missionary without being paid by the church. In fact, in many areas, the only way you can do evangelism is as tentmaker missionary. Because if you were to go as a missionary, let's say you're not welcome. If you went to go as a pastor, you'd not be welcome. But if you go there as a doctor, or as a teacher in some uh, area of need, they say, come and help us. And you have opportunities uh, to speak out. And the added advantage is that very often your work will then give you that point of contact because you can talk to your colleagues or the people you live among, like Anna uh, shared that they uh, were living there on the swim base and they were able to reach out to the people around them. Um, so it's so important we recognize that um, to be a missionary doesn't mean you have a paid position. It means that you use the opportunities God has given you to share the gospel, sometimes at home, sometimes overseas. Now, <clears throat> the other thing I want you to note is that um, Paul was very flexible about how he did his work. As soon as uh, Silas and Timothy joined him, uh, he stops as tent maker ministry and goes into full-time mission. I think the reason being that Timothy and Silas brought some money with him from supporting churches, and uh, he is on full-time again. Notice, too, how Paul was prepared to change his target group. He was working with the Jews, but when they opposed him, he said, okay, then I will work with the Gentiles. If one thing doesn't work, try another. And I think that's so necessary that we recognize that we have to be flexible in our outreach strategy because what worked yesterday may not work today. Give you an example. There was a time when I think you could do a lot of work teaching Christianity in school. But certainly in Victoria, where my wife was doing this, uh, the, you were no longer welcome to teach in schools. Uh, to school chaplaincy, too, um, came more and more difficult. But other opportunities open up. For example, uh, it, when uh, students graduated, for some reason, they all uh, moved to um, Queensland here to the Gold Coast and uh, the schoolies. And so they started a new program of outreach to these schoolies known as Red Frogs. Have you heard of them? 
Yeah, they're doing great work. You see, if one door shuts, there's always another door that opens. And we just got to ask God to show us where we can do that work. Don't become discouraged when one door shuts. No, look for new opportunities. Now, I then want to come to our text where we see that as Paul is working there in Corinth, he gets encouragement from the Lord who comes to him in a vision and says to him, Paul, I want you to be encouraged. Don't worry about what's going to happen here. I will you will be protected because I have many people here. Now, that could be misunderstood. You could understand that God is saying, Paul, there's so many Christians here, they'll protect you if something happens. I don't think that's what it means for two reasons. One, when did God ever say you don't have to worry because there are so many of you here? <laughs> when Gideon had to uh, fight the Midianites, did God say, okay, Midian, you've got plenty of men, you can go and beat them? No, he said, you've got too many. Gideon said, you must be joking, they're far more than us. No, send uh, those who don't want to go, send them home. A large number of people left. And Gideon said, you expect me to fight them with, with this handful? No, that's too many, says God. Uh, I want you to give them a test, have them drink at the creek, and depending on how they drink, you send a lot of them away. And he's left with these few hundred men. Is this what you want, Lord? Yes. And of course, he wins this tremendous victory. And we see similar stories with David, uh, Elijah is reminded that God still has 7,000 faithful people, which is not a lot in a whole country. But numbers are never what counts. It is God's presence that counts. It is God's power. And so uh, what God is telling Paul here when he said, don't be afraid because I have many people, it doesn't mean many Christians. Then what does it mean? It means that God has his elect there for Paul to gather. They have to be gathered in. You're right, Paul. I'll look after you because I want you to gather these people. Actually, the construction here is very similar to what we find in John 17 when it talks about God's elect people, my people. And these are the ones that Paul has to gather in. Uh, it's been my personal experience uh, in working in Nigeria that if God has his people he wants to gather, you can just go out and do it. It will happen. You don't need to worry. My wife and I were uh, working in uh, the middle belt of Nigeria where I was teaching at a uh, theological college training pastors, doing evangelism on the weekend, and we were happy because we just had electricity, and we had a new road put in, and uh, <coughs> all kinds of, oh, and there was a company down the road that even had a swimming pool so that we could go for an occasional swim, and we said, thank you, Lord, finally, after years of hardship, it's becoming a little more comfortable, and then the mission came to us. We believe the Lord wants you to go and start a new mission field in the northwest of the country. And we said, we're not interested, thank you. Uh, we've got a great ministry here. We'll stay here. 
they came back and said, we'll fly you there so that you can have a look. And they flew us out there, had a man waiting with a, a car who took us around. Well, <coughs> all we saw was dust. It was unbearably hot. We hardly saw any people because they all ran away. And when we came back, we said, no, not for us. Thank you. <laughs> But a few nights later, uh, I felt Henny tossing and turning in bed beside me, and I said, are you thinking what I'm thinking? She said, the Lord wants us there, doesn't he? Because the Lord has people there he wants to gather in. And then we realized that as long as we trusted the Lord, we could say yes. And we went there despite the fact that we didn't think we'd have any success because the last missionary sent into, well, you see the northwest of Nigeria was a Muslim part of Nigeria. And the last missionary sent to the northeast, which was also Muslim, had been sent home by the secret police. And we could see the same happening. Um, <clears throat> but we said, Lord, if you want us there, we'll go. And I wish I had time to describe you all the events that happened in a miraculous way that just opened up doors so that we could set up that mission in the northwest of Nigeria. Why could we do it? Because God had his people there. His elect were there. And the moment we began to preach, people started to respond and turn to God. You see, a proper understanding of the doctrine of election encourages evangelism because we know the work doesn't depend on us, but it depends on God. This is entirely in line with Scripture. For example, in Acts 2.47, we read that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Or again, in chapter 16.14, that he... He's the one who opens the doors to men's hearts to give heed to the gospel. Where God has his elect, mission will always be successful. And this is what God was telling Paul in that vision. You can go ahead with confidence because I have my people here. And this is what I found to, to be such a great encouragement to our work there in northwestern Nigeria. God had his people there. All we had to do was bring them in by telling them the gospel. Now, I'm not suggesting that this minimizes the evangelist's responsibility. Yes, we are God's instrument, but we are also God's ambassador. And we all know that an ambassador does his best for the people he represents. He speaks on their behalf. He uh, argues. He persuades. And that's what we see Paul doing. In fact, if you go to the book of Acts to look which verb is used most often with respect to what Paul is doing, it'll either be that he was arguing or persuading men uh, about the gospel. And it's a great comfort to know that what we say is used by God if we do our best. Even if we sometimes think, ah, I don't think I really got that across. And next moment you hear that somebody uh, came to conversion through what was said. Now, I believe that God is still at work in Australia. Yes, we have seen Christianity as a culture receding. But I think God has his people here. And if God has his people here, including the elect, they will come in 
as we bring the gospel to them. And we have many testimonies of people who are still coming in today to new ministries like Answers in Genesis, talking about creation and uh, many other new projects untried before. And I want you to realize that on a global scale, God's church is advancing rapidly. My wife and I were in Cambodia last year, and we'd been, oh, a number of times because our son lives there, and we started going there at least 12 years ago, and we never saw much in the way of Christianity. But last time we came, we suddenly saw people preaching, people sharing the gospel, people coming to Christ, because God was gathering in his people in Cambodia. And so you can go to Africa, to Nepal, to India. Uh, you know where there's the greatest church growth today? Among Muslims in Arabia. Churches are doubling in size every few years. In Israel too, there's tremendous growth in the church. So if we see that in the Western world, it looks like Christianity is declining uh, because we remember a kind of glorious Christian age, golden age. Uh, on a worldwide scale, God's kingdom is advancing rapidly. And by the way, I don't want you to overstate our Christian heritage. Yes, it's true that our culture supposedly was Christian. But if you were to ask how many people were really committed to Christ the percentage is probably much lower than we would have thought. I've seen estimations that at, at the time of the Reformation, for example, only 10% of people were really worshiping God. At the time that Methodism made an inroads, Christianity as an act of faith had almost uh, disappeared from Britain. It was like Israel of old where one day you see uh, a judge who brings people to, uh, to God, and the next uh, generation, they all fall away till God raises up a new judge or a new king. Under David and Solomon, uh, we have this God-fearing empire, and then under Jeroboam and Rehoboam, we see it all fall apart. And in Australia and New Zealand and uh, the Western world, we see the same thing. Uh, as a society, Christianity has, well, we can say we are a post-Christian society. But when it comes to the number of believers in the country, I don't think all that much has changed. What we do find is that we do need new methods of outreach. I don't think street corner preaching evangelistic uh, rallies, the Billy Graham crusade type and so, uh, work very well today on the whole. I'm not saying don't try it, but uh, I think we need to look for new methods, like inviting people into our homes for Bible study. Maybe start with inviting them for a meal and pray with them, read the Bible with them. Um, perhaps um, you can uh, form some small groups Perhaps you can work through um, homeschooling, working with uh, people who are concerned about sending their children to the public schools. You know that today we are very much like the kind of world that Paul was in. Got his government was not at all sympathetic to Christianity. 
like our government today. And um, Christianity was a minority group as we are today. And that's why we need methods like those that were used in the first uh, century where many people came to Christ mainly because of the love that Christians showed to others. God's purpose in election continues. He has his people here in our society in Wishart. It's for you to go out and bring them in. So, like Paul, let's go out, knowing that God's people are there, and all we have to do is gather them in, and we can reach out in confidence, trusting that God will use even us. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the way the gospel uh, can change the hearts of even the most wicked people. And Father, we do want to pray for our society that we may find how we can make inroads with the gospel once again. We do pray, Lord, that uh, we will see a revival in this land and that many people will come to you throughout the world. In Jesus' name, amen.